Welcome to In Our Experience, a podcast exploring the many ways of living well with Nourish Yoga Training. I'm your host, Harriet, yoga teacher and founder of Nourish. And today I'm being joined virtually from Philadelphia by Sheena Sood. So Sheena is an activist, educator, sociologist and healing justice visionary of South Asian descent and Southern roots. Sheena enjoys teaching gentle vinyasa or hatha practices infused with embodied liberatory philosophy. Currently, Sheena serves as a visiting assistant professor at Muhlenberg College in the Sociology and Anthropology Department. Her current research project, Om Washing Yoga, Weaponized Spirituality in India, Israel and the US, scrutinizes the application of yoga and mindfulness around the globe, particularly by far-right governments who use yoga to advance their colonial and ethno-nationalist agendas. I had such a great time chatting with Sheena. We could have talked for hours, I'm sure. But in this episode, we cover the liberatory potential of yoga, how governments and organizations use yoga to sanitize their image, and the joy of having very delicious treats to hand. As always, I'm so keen to hear what you think. So do pop us an email. You can find how to contact us in the show notes. Thanks again to Sheena for joining me. And here's the episode. Hi, Sheena. Welcome to In Our Experience. It's so lovely to have you here. Oh, it's so lovely to be a guest. Thank thank you so much for thinking of and inviting me. My pleasure. Well, we'll get started as I do every episode by asking you what's nourishing you this week. And it can be big, serious, it could be silly, it could be small. And I'll, I'll help you by sharing mine first. So, um, I play guitar and I sing, um, and not in public (laughs) and not really for anybody else except for me, but the past couple of months, I've really been challenging my guitar playing skills and I, it's been really, rewarding to see that playing off. So I've sort of transitioned into doing more like complex finger picking folk songs, which has like, it's the music that I listen to the most. And now to be able to play it and sing it has felt really, really rewarding and really nourishing to me. And to see, I think, to see like a skill developing in a way that it hasn't in a while, has been really nice. Uh, So that's me. How about you? That sounds really beautiful. Oh, thanks for sharing. Um, Mine is um, just purely decadent pleasure of knowing that there are numerous vegan treats in my fridge that I have been like slowly picking at each day this week because not only did I order a box of vegan croissants from like the only vegan French bakery in the country um, for my birthday, but I also had like friends bring me treats. And so I've just been slowly making my way through them. And I think I'll have enough until like a couple weeks from now, at least. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. I love the the joy of knowing that you have really delicious things like right there it's great yes are you are you more of a a sweet treat person are you like a savory treat person I I think I'm both um I grew up in a home where food and food preparation really mattered Mm. um and so my parents make 
both of my parents cook a bunch, um, a lot of Indian food, a lot of other recipes. And so I do think I have um, desires for savory foods and love to cook, you know, spicy food, love to cook um, different stir fries and curries and, you know, dolls and mm. um, what we call subjis mm. in Punjab, which are like vegetable dishes. And then I also just really love um, like decadent, but also really like not too sweet, but like really intentionally planned like vegan treats too. Oh, mm-hmm. How wonderful. I just out out of my eyeline at the moment, I have a box of cupcakes that my my other guest today brought me, and it's they're, they're they're sort of staring at me. They're calling my name, but you know, I I really I really hear around the the intentionality of it as well, like it being something that's really deliberately chosen and cultivated is so so lovely too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love food. Yeah, I could just I should really just have a food podcast. What are we doing talking about <laughs> yoga? <laughs> right. Um, but we are here. We are here to talk about you a little bit. So I'd love to. I'd love to ask you a little bit about your background and how it is that you describe what you do because you, like so many people in, I guess the the yoga space, you do many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my background and how I do what I do. Um, I'm going to try and not make this a really long answer as well. But so I started practicing yoga mostly through my grandmother teaching me um, mantras and chanting when I was younger. And kind of during college, I found solace in learning a little bit of yoga um, from organizations uh such as like hindu student groups on campus this one organization called the art of living and then i actually ended up leaving yoga for a little bit uh during a time at which i was becoming politicized uh because i was getting politicized and kind of connecting with more leftist analysis of um global capitalism, of oppression, of, you know, just like racial politics, but also like Hindutva or Hindu right politics, as we call it. And so I felt like I couldn't have a relationship with these organizations that thought that they owned yoga or that thought that um, you had to learn yoga in this way. And I entered grad school much later um, in my 20s at a time when I was like slowly coming back to the practice of yoga uh, and I entered a PhD program in sociology at that time. And as I was kind of building relationships with organizations that were working for, you know, let's say like ecological justice or prison abolition or the freedom of political prisoners and for racial justice issues, I started finding uh a way to kind of carve out my path for yoga or a way in which, you know, kind of learning yoga became um, a practice of social justice and a practice of care for me Uh, and uh, pursued um, a yoga certification uh, in India 
at that time, like while I was in grad school. And, and so it's funny because, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, I have this identity as, you know, having a PhD in sociology and, you know, in that practice of learning how to do research as a sociologist on issues like South Asian politics or the politics of yoga, um, I also was kind of studying and learning what is my relationship to my spiritual practice in a way that wasn't connected to organized religion or it wasn't connected to Hinduism in this very um, monolithic way of how it's understood or this kind of um, way in which it was politicized towards fundamentalism. And, um, and so I think having that kind of unique pathway and then growing up as like a, a woman of color in the U.S. South and letting that inform my identity and my experience in the academy um, has allowed me to kind of um, build uh, a practice or build like a, um, a way of connecting to like a healer identity or a scholar identity and an activist identity that um, is really committed to something around like community liberation that's really committed to something around like multi-generational um, uh, kind of creating multi-generational spaces uh, that allow for people to be able to access like healing within themselves and to pursue a practice of social justice in their community. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is just, I, I love that so much. And I love, I mean, there's many, many things in, in there that I am interested in to sort of like t tug on a little bit, but I, just what you said at the end there around a practice of social justice about this, you know, it being a a process that you're involved in on a personal level, but then also on a community based level, I think is is something that's often missed by people working in activist spaces about it. You know, I I have a lot of friends that are, you know, in activism roles or in these sort of like campaigning spaces and the burnout is real and it's intense and it's like, you know, sort of marrying the, the personal spiritual practice along with the sort of more, I guess, outward looking society, community based work is something that I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested in because it's sort of how I've chosen to navigate the space as well. Right. Like, mm -hmm. um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, burnout is definitely very, very real. And so much, you know, I have a number of organizer, activists, scholar friends who just give so much of themselves uh, to these really righteous causes of, you know, working on prison abolitionism or working on issues of um, internationalism and uh, trying to feed their communities and trying to create mutual aid in the time of this pandemic and um, who end up doing a lot for others in a way that neglects themselves. And, and I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily an active proponent of the concept of self-care per se, mm. but uh, what does it mean to think about collective care mm 
is something that I'm trying to make more sense of. And that doesn't mean that I think self-care is not important. Uh, I think, you know, um, it is very important, but how is it that we can think about um, creating structures in society that really allow us to care for each other better? Or how is it that um, we can kind of use our gaze for what we envision in transforming society and also be equally reflective of how we can, you know, transform ourselves in the process of trying to work for transforming society. And I think part of that is the spiritual care that we provide for ourselves. It's about evolving ourselves mm. uh, toward a higher version of ourselves. And, and I think that can happen in so many ways. It doesn't have to happen through an active yoga practice. It can happen through taking a walk and really um, connecting with nature in whatever way feels possible. Maybe it's observing, uh, you know, leaves on a tree or um, as much as I'm not a fan of being cold, really just staring in awe at the way in which snow falls mm. uh, or um, taking a moment in nature. And, um, and yeah, I think, I just wish we had more of those spaces and that we were more unapologetic in being able to access those spaces while we work on behalf of um, activist and social justice causes. Mm, I, I really hear that. Likewise, similar to you, I don't love the whole self-care thing. I One of the, one of the, real issues that I think we are facing in in contemporary yoga is how it just becomes a gateway into like like hyper individualism and you know the whole you know neoliberal agenda <laughs> essentially um and you know the, the links between wellness and those spaces are just so stark and like they get they get unfortunately they get stronger and stronger all the time so I love this uh this idea of collective care and and you know the unapologeticness of it as well I think is really is really important one of my one of my favorite quotes about this is from um Jeevana Heyman who runs Accessible Yoga and Jeevana has this quote around spiritual power without service is just power um, and it's this, you know, I guess for me, this sense of like, unless you have a framework and a perspective and a community to sort of locate your spiritual practice within, it just gets turned back in on, into you in ways that can sometimes like be quite unsupportive or quite damaging, I think. Yeah. Um, I love the work of accessible yoga too. And, um, I, ha I bought Jeevana's book, but I haven't, um, read it yet. But I think, um, anything that's popular within our culture can get taken up by a neoliberal agenda and mm. used in ways to advance, um, a capitalist kind of framework, um, or a capitalist structure. And, and so, yeah, self-care, you know, becomes this way in which, you know, if somebody is struggling or if somebody, um, you know, can't keep up at work or 
um, you know, even in schools, like, you know, the, the amount of like ways in which schools are using mindfulness and yoga as remedies for people who maybe need to be disciplined, quote unquote. Um, it's really scary because I think, uh, all of this points towards like, you know, this idea that if people aren't, people are struggling, then they need to fix themselves. Mm. And self-care is the way to fix themselves, which you still have to pay um, materials for a bubble bath. You still have to pay for the yoga class. You still have to pay for the retreat or the, you know, whatever it is that is connected to self-care to, you know, feeding yourself, um, quote unquote, you know, nourishing foods or health foods. Um, and, And I think that's really scary because it absolves the government or it absolves these social structures from uh, creating um, jobs that pay you well enough to where you have enough time and resources to be able to participate in care and, um, and, you know, creating work conditions that actually realize your humanity or meet your humanity in a way that allows you to take care of social and familial obligations and, care obligations in addition mm. to, you know, um, participating in, you know, the social and economic structure. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it's just, it's kind of, um, it's a really tricky conversation how self-care gets, um, taken up by, mm. uh, some of the yoga industry or the, yeah, the industry that serves wellness, um, in this current context. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm interested to hear a little bit about your work as a sociologist and your research, because I mean, I've, I've read, I've read, you know, some of your work and I've, I've listened to, um, you're an episode of Conspirituality with Matthew and yeah, I'm, I'm keen to hear about your work and, and where it's taking you at the moment. Oh yeah. Thank you. Um, I was excitedly typing notes before this podcast started because, uh, this semester I get to teach a sociology of yoga course (gasps) at Muhlenberg. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) I want to be in your class. (laughs) Yes. I would love that. Maybe one day I'll think about making it a public class Mm. as well. Um, but yeah, I was typing notes from a book by Andrea Jane. I'm not sure if you know her work. Um, they're going to read a bunch of Andrea Jane, uh, this semester. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to kind of work on giving students like a embodied practice, but then also giving them a critical scholarly understanding of yoga, which I don't think that fusion or that merging often happens. You know, I'm a yoga practitioner. A lot of scholars who are, studying yoga, some of them are, you know, practitioners as well, or scholar practitioners. Um, But a lot of times within the scholarly realm, um, you get religious studies scholars who maybe are, are, are definitely critical, but not necessarily um, kind of coming from that practitioner edge. And so I'm hoping that my students can kind of get a mixture of both. Um, But I, I say that to say that I do really believe that yoga can can be used for liberatory potential. Yeah, 
Um, I think the opportunity to really spend time healing oneself and helping others recognize the healer potential within themselves is, uh, is, is hugely significant for when we think about the freedom and transformation of our communities, um, towards social justice. Uh, but I think because of the situation that we're in, where, you know, the yoga industry is a multi-billion dollar industry where, um, yoga is often co-opted and appropriated by, you know, not just the West, but, you know, even by governments that are far right leaning, that are inclined towards fascist politics and fascist social agendas, uh, that it, um, it has become apparent to me how important it is that scholars and scholar practitioners be able to talk about the weaponization of yoga. And, and so this project of Omwashing Yoga is really about trying to unearth and take a critical eye to the way in which far right leaning governments uh, that have either colonial agendas or, uh, you know, um, kind of fascist right wing authoritarian agendas uh, use yoga to sanitize their reputation. Uh, so I'm looking um, particularly at three countries as case studies. Uh, I'm looking at India where, you know, you see the work of Prime Minister Narendra Modi ever since he was elected in 2014. Even though the work of the right-wing Hindu fundamentalists kind of goes far back to like the early 1900s, um, but looking specifically at the ways in which, you know, some of how he uses yoga is towards, also towards like sanitizing his own reputation, making him seem peaceful, Mm. And his political agenda seeming peaceful uh, while passing really abhorrent um, policies and citizenship acts that uh, are discriminatory towards Muslims, towards uh, lower caste people, uh, towards anyone who's non-Hindu, right? So trying Mm. to create this like Hindu only agenda and trying to instill this idea that yoga belongs to Hindus. in order to justify creating a um, a less secular and uh, more um, Hindu nationalist country within mm. uh, India, and so and then the other two countries that I'm looking at are um, Israel, right, which um, is kind of third rail to talk about, but uh, but really looking at the way in which you know um, not just the Israeli military, but like Israeli popular culture um, and post-service in the military, the way in which um, a lot of members of the Israeli occupation force uh, after compulsory service will often go on these kind of backpacking trips or these spiritual uh, journeys uh, to other countries such as India um, to, to learn about meditation and spirituality, which I think is you know, really important if it can be used to help them interrogate what it is that they've participated in, which is really um, 
brutal colonial violence against Palestinian people mm-hmm. in the occupied territories of, you know, occupied Palestine. Uh, so it can be used towards libertary purposes, but I think more often what I have seen is this way in which they're using it towards spiritual bypass of just kind of like erasing the violence from their memory of what it is that they've just participated in. Mm. And, um, and then I also am looking at the United States. Uh, so looking at the way in which, um, yoga is used in, uh, the U S military, but also in law enforcement. So in policing institutions, uh, not systematically, uh, but it's, you'll have, you know, these media headlines, um, where, you know, they'll say like, oh, police officers use yoga to thwart police brutality, right? So this assumption that if we invest more resources in policing by giving them access to these mindfulness and yoga techniques, that it's going to like, you know, just automatically transform, um, the, uh, the systematic violence mm-hmm. that they're perpetuating against oppressed communities uh, in, you know, um, in low-income neighborhoods and wherever, or just like as if it's going to kind of like automatically subvert the anti-Black um, violence. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, so, yeah, just kind of like trying to bring a critical eye to the way in which um, some of these institutions that are... Um, structurally violent use yoga to kind of sanitize their reputation oh that i mean i i love it i i just think it's i think it's absolutely so fascinating because i mean on a lived experience level for me and i think it's the same for any any yoga practitioner any yoga teacher you like i'm constantly having to like undo or reframe people's assumptions about me and how I live my life because I'm a yoga teacher mm. that you've like, oh, you must be so relaxed or you must be so, <laughs> you must be so peaceful. And I'm like, I like sometimes but is that, yeah, it's not, it's not how it works. And also, you know, my, I guess my experience of, of my practice is that it only makes me, I don't know, gives me more energy to be engaged in these things rather than like, sure. you know, uh, avoidant of them or escaping them or something. Um, yeah. so, you know, or the assumption that it makes you inherently good as opposed mm. to just stronger at whatever it is you think you're supposed to do. Right. Which if you're in the military, if you're in, um, law enforcement, then, you know, um, and no shame on the individual, but thinking more structurally about the the systems and the institutions that it's just going to make you that much sharper, mm. that much more um, at a capacity to do your job. Mm. If you have the breathing techniques, if you are doing the postures and, um, you know, just kind of really intentionally focusing on bringing uh, that practice into yourself to get better at whatever it is you're doing. Mm. And so it's, to me, yoga is neutral. Um, it's not inherently peaceful. It's not inherently good. It's not inherently liberatory. It has liberatory potential. Mm. Uh, if it can be linked with a social justice practice 
uh, I don't think it's inherently social justice either, even though I think there are some practitioners who, who write about yoga being inherently about social justice. I, I think I disagree with that and say yoga to me is neutral. Mm, I, I think that's a really, I think that's a really important and really grounding perspective to have. I recently interviewed a guest, um, Amelia Wood, who's writing a PhD on spiritual abuse within yoga. And I was talking with her about often when people outside of yoga hear that there's an abuse problem within yoga, they're like, oh, like, you know, Catholic church, maybe, but yoga shouldn't have an abuse problem, should it? And her point is that yoga is not outside of these, you know, outside of our culture. Like there's a, there's a weird, there's an exoticization that happens. It's like, well, because it's come from somewhere else and because it's really like, it makes you a good person, then yoga doesn't have an abuse problem. But, you know, yoga is just as much in the culture as the Catholic church, as government, as, you know, schools, as, you know, the military. Um, you know, and it really speaks to your point that, you know, I love this idea that yoga is neutral and it has liberatory potential. And that's what makes like the frame that it exists in for you so important, because I think there are, there are so many people I talk to who feel like yoga isn't for them. And it's because they've encountered it through a sort of moralizing, shame-filled discourse, right? And I, I totally get it. Like, I wouldn't want to be a part of that either. Like, I, would, I wouldn't feel like I was welcome in that space too. Um, so what are, what are some of the, if yoga has liberatory potential, what are some of the conditions that you think it needs in order to express that potential? Yeah. Um, I do think that, there is like something that I think is prototypical, but not essential within the context of how yoga is discussed is this idea of interconnectivity and how yoga brings us into mindfulness and self-awareness of how we are not, um, we are not separate, right? We mm. are connected to each other. Human beings are connected to each other. Humans are connected to fur babies like Cora, um, my puppy, or, you know, just like all life is connected. And I do think that um, this idea of interconnectivity in action or in praxis is something that uh, is really important to the way I think about how yoga can uh, reach that liberatory potential is through uh, recognizing that any action we take does have an impact on mm. others. Mm. And so how can we think mindfully in a way uh, so that, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, whether it's like we're throwing out trash, we're thinking about recycling, or we're thinking about going to this action um, around, you know, ending police brutality you know, if even if police brutality may not directly affect my community uh, or someone of my identity markers, how is it that I can tap into a sense of interconnectivity in that moment and realize that it doesn't matter if my superficial identity markers 
are not um, affected by this uh, structurally violent phenomenon, Mm. but I have a duty, right? Mm. So I think like the idea and, you know, duty brings to mind this concept within yoga around dharma, which, you know, I don't think dharma is also inherently about social justice. I think dharma can be used to justify things like abusive hierarchical systems like caste, but in the way that I think about dharma, um, how can it be used for us to think about like a dutiful purpose that is about bridging that interconnectivity, right? And mm. so what is my duty? Um, and uh, as it relates to like liberatory potential, I think that there are a lot of different um, ways in which, you know, we can think about what is our um, it's not necessarily like a duty, but, um, a sense of kind of community Mm. or communal style. Um, I'm trying to think about how you might link that to a liberatory vision, but, um, the way in which we operate, not so much as oriented towards what will serve me, Mm. but, what will serve me, my community and the world. Mm. Um, and, and so making decisions from that place of like, um, you know, having relationships within one's community, uh, and, and really thinking about relationship building as a practice, um, that yoga can help us in, right. Um, yoga can help us communicate better with those we care about yoga can help us, you know, just like those mindful breaths. Um, whenever we take mindful breaths and whenever we practice yoga, are we just thinking about serving ourselves? Are we just thinking about exercise or are we thinking about and reflecting on, uh, the interactions that we have with, um, people we care about and finding more loving and tender ways to interact with the people that we care about, and maybe even the people who we <laughs> um, might feel struggles with, mm-hmm. right, or challenges with. And so how can yoga help us through conflict? Uh, and, and yeah, just be able to, like, fuel um, our vision for creative, for creative projects, for uh, transformative justice. Um, there, I think there are a lot of ways. But, yeah, yeah. Um, when it comes to liberatory potential, I just think that um, I'm reminded of the work of Grace Lee Boggs. Uh, she was an author who lived in Detroit for a long period of her time and philosopher. And she was a community activist who talked a lot about um, transformation and uh, evolution as Um, a really important principle for thinking about revolution. Mm. Uh, So if we're working towards revolution and revolutionary change, are we prepared to evolve ourselves so that we're not just thinking about changing the structures around us, but also how are we participating in that revolutionary change by committing to evolution within ourselves? And so there's something there about self-growth and a willingness to change ourselves in the process of changing uh, the world around us too. Oh, I love I love that, and sort of how 
yeah, there there is real potential there for yoga to be uh, something that helps in that process of self evolution, um, whilst mm-hmm. we're you know waiting for the revolution to come. <laughs> uh, so uh, on that on that note, we are have rapidly run out of time. It goes so quickly. <laughs> um, so before we finish up, where where can our audience find you, um, and what sort of things are you up to at the moment? that they can maybe see. Oh, it's been such a lovely conversation, Harriet. Thank you so much. Um, so a couple things that I'm really excited to be planning right now. Um, I have a yoga retreat in Jamaica coming up in June. Um, a friend of mine who lives there, uh, Empress Tandi and I are co-curating this experience together. It's a friend of mine who I've been close to for about 10 years now. And it's called a solstice chakra reset. And it is an opportunity. It's a five day opportunity to work with the chakras, which are those inner sacral or sacred energy portals within, within ourselves and use them to connect to nature, but then also to connect to values and principles of social justice and collective liberation. And that's June 17th through the 22nd, uh, 2022. So I'm so pumped. Um, it's also going to be mango season. Oh, do you know what? I am in tree yoga teacher fashion. I'm on retreat that week. Otherwise I would come myself. Hilarious. Good for you. So that, um, I have a kids yoga project that is about educating, um, or offering mindfulness to children and to kids uh, ages four through 10, usually through a social justice lens. I'm in the midst of um, using inspiration from you to start recording my videos um, so that uh, I can share them with the world. So that's Yoga Warrior Tales. If you want to check out uh, any of those projects, you can find me on Instagram, the um the handle is at Sheena underscore shining and then at yoga warrior tales. Uh, you'll get to see my puppy who's the mascot, my puppy Cora. Uh, and then my website's sheenashining.com. So that's just www.sheenashining.com. Um, grateful to hear from others, you know, how they receive this conversation, if they have further questions and thank you. Thank you so much, Sheena. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Yes. Take care. Thanks for listening to In Our Experience. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. We love hearing what you think and it makes a really big difference. In the meantime, until the next episode comes out, why not check us out on our Instagram account at Nourish Yoga Training or pop us an email via our website. See you soon.